turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to kind of pick up in the middle of where we left off last week, beginning with verse 7. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. We're coming down toward the end. That is the end of Revelation. But we're also coming toward the end, I think, of human history. We have run the course of many things that God has uh, planned and unfolded and told us about in the, in the course of human history. And as we come uh, to this point in time, we see things like never before lining up in such a way to experience the fulfillment of what John envisions in the Revelation. We began literally in the first century as he wrote the letters uh, to the seven churches as dictated by Jesus himself. And then we moved through a series of visions that John saw as God unfolded to him not only the things that were going to happen in the near future, but also the things that were going to happen in the distant future. And uh, last week we talked about the millennium, or the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years. And I happen to believe that that is a literal period of time in which Jesus is going to reign upon this earth, and we who are his followers, are going to reign with him. And uh, it's going to be a marvelous and wonderful time as we experience the process of redeeming and restoring all that was lost going all the way back to the Garden of Eden when man sinned. And so, as we pick up the story this morning, we come to the end of that thousand-year reign you may wonder, okay, how are things going to finally play out? What is the end of human history uh, that is as we know it? And after that thousand years, and, and you recall I told you that there were uh, two classes of people that are simultaneously living upon the earth. A lot of people have kind of uh, uh, made fun of this idea that it's ridiculous to assume that resurrected, glorified believers are going to be cohabiting the earth, co-dwelling with natural human beings. But the Scripture indicates in the first resurrection that we're going to be joined with Christ in His second coming. And we're going to, those of us who are alive, rise to meet Him in the air, and those that Uh, have died before us, are going to be raised out of their graves, and they're going to return with Christ. And so, you you have to say, what's going to happen to us? And Daniel says, we're going to reign and rule with Christ. And that's part of the, part of the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. And yet, there are people who will survive that final war of Armageddon. And they will move into the millennial kingdom as natural human beings. For us, there will be no death. Our, our tenure, so to speak, in the natural flesh is completed. 
And we're going to be with Christ forever. But it says that uh, a person who is a hundred years old and dies will be thought to be a young person at, a, at the age of a hundred. And so the implication is there will be death. There will be other kinds of natural things going on. And so how do we explain this unless we realize that there will be natural humanity surviving the battle of Armageddon, moving into the millennial kingdom, as well as resurrected and glorified saints co-reigning with Jesus Christ. So, what about all those natural people? What's going to happen with them? Well, there's an indication, especially in this morning's text, that as time goes along, they will have families, uh, they will have children, the earth will begin to repopulate. You can imagine how much repopulation can occur in a thousand years, particularly when circumstances are ideal. Uh, there's not going to be uh, all of the adversity, there's not going to be any wars, there's not going to be uh, all of these terrible uh, natural disasters, because Christ is going to be in charge. And so there will be opportunity for the earth to repopulate. And we're going to come to an end of a period of time where the rule of Christ has in essence inhibited evil and ungodliness. The very fact that He is in charge and that we have been reigning with Him all over the globe is going to ensure that the world is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And there will not be an opportunity for rebellion and resistance and warfare and all of those terrible kinds of things that happen when uh, humanity rebels against governments and rebels against one another. So, we come to the end of that period. And according to the Scripture, at the end of that period, Satan, whom you will remember has been bound, locked up for this thousand years so that he will not create havoc, is going to be released. And as he is released, he will be able to move out across the earth and appeal to those whose hearts have never truly been with Jesus. They have been living under forced um, obedience, as it were. They have not been able to rebel and create havoc. And so now uh, the devil will be permitted to move among them again and to incite... Uh, rebellion and self-will against Jesus Christ. This gives a lot of people trouble. Many people raise the question, why would God allow this to happen? They raise this question about the Garden of Eden. 
if God created a perfect world and a perfect paradise and put two perfect people in it, why would he allow the enemy to appeal to them? And why would he allow it at the end? And in order to bring some perspective to this, and you've heard me say this before, but this is the answer for those who are true seekers, who are really trying to grapple with and understand the presence of evil in the world. We need to recognize that God's desire is to have people who are capable of love. And love can never be forced. It must always be freely given. If you force someone to love you, well, first of all, you can't do that. But if you could, if you could force someone to to live in your house and force them to work with you and force them to do the things that you desire and force them to follow your direction, what do you call that? Slavery. That's called slavery. That is not love. Love is when there's a voluntary commitment between people or persons, I should more correctly say. And loving God must be a choice or it doesn't exist. And loving one another must be a choice. And in order for it to be a choice, there must be a choice not to. And so in the Garden of Eden, in order to have a loving relationship based upon the desire and heart of Adam and Eve and God, there had to be an opportunity for them to choose otherwise. And at the end of time, likewise, those who have lived under the, the government of peace and righteousness but have chafed at it, must also be given the opportunity to turn their hearts away from God. And so for a short period of time, the devil will be released to kindle in their heart the rebellion that has been lurking there. Many of them will follow the Lord. Many of them will not. And the scripture says that the horde of humanity that rebels against Christ will be like the sand of the seashore. And they will gather as the armies of the world against Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting that throughout the Scripture, the focus of Satan's vengeance and the focus of people who hate God is always Jerusalem. It's it's like a, a magnet toward those who despise the living God. And they will march against Jerusalem. But the Scripture says, before they can fire the first salvo, as they appear in mass surrounding the holy city, 
that fire will come from heaven and devour them. And that will be the end of the final rebellion. The last opportunity for human beings to make a choice whether to follow God or to go their own way, which is tantamount to following the devil. And you and I, as I say that, I I want to remind us that we need to recognize that we were never made to be entirely autonomous. We have a certain amount of freedom of the will that God has given us. But you will never be self-directed. Your choice is to follow God or follow Satan. There is not a third option. So whenever you are not following Jesus Christ, you are following Satan. There is no middle ground, and there's no third choice. People think they're doing what they want to do, but they're not doing what they want to do. They've played right into the hands of the enemy. And even as believers, we need to bear that in mind. Because whenever we resist the prompting and leadership of the Holy Spirit, guess who we're following? We're following the very enemy of God. And even though we are born again, and God's Spirit lives within us, and He is grieved by that choice, we must recognize that we have, at least in that moment, joined hands with the enemy of God and His people. Following the Lord is so very, very important. And so the Scripture says that after this final rebellion, there will be a judgment that we call the judgment of the great white throne. And there will again be two kinds of people at that judgment. There will be those whose names are in the book of life. And there will be those whose names are not. Those whose names are in the book of life are all those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They will be in the book of life by the grace of God that exempts them from judgment. They will not face judgment for their sins or their deeds. Remember, going back to the judgment seat of Christ, all believers have been examined according to what has been accomplished through them of eternal significance. But as I read my Bible and put it all together, I must draw the conclusion that I will never face my sin. My sin has been covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. It has been hidden away as far as the east is from the west. I will never have to confront it. I will never face it. I will never be judged for my bad deeds. They will not ever face me in any judgment. 
because Jesus Christ has paid the price and clothed me with His righteousness, judicially declared me without sin, and God cannot violate His word and commitment to me by bringing it up again. So as a believer, you're not going to face any kind of judgment for your sin. In fact, as you stand with the mass of humanity in this final great white throne, the reality is your names are in the Lamb's book of life. And you have already passed the bar. You have already been approved. You are on the verge of entering eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life? Some people through the years, a number of people have asked me, why can't I be judged on the basis of what I've done? Is Jesus the only way to heaven? And I have to be honest and say, in a logical sense, the answer to the question is no. Jesus is not the only way. There is an alternative. There's another way. If when you come to the judgment of the great white throne, you have zero bad to your credit and all good, as determined by the life and character of Jesus Christ, so that you have lived perfectly from the moment of your conception until the day of your death, and never once sinned against a holy God ever in your life, in thought or word or deed, in theory, you could be admitted to eternity. Who wants to take that chance? That's a foolish thing. The reality is that even though it might be logically and theoretically possible, it is practically impossible because the Scripture says we are already born with a deficit. In sin, my mother conceived me in iniquity, I was born. I had a sin nature from, from my conception. It was passed on to me. And the first time I could intelligently make a decision to choose right or wrong, I was compelled to go the wrong direction. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and it is the rod of discipline that drives it away from him. If you let uh, any person go their own way, they will always fall into rebellion and self-will. They will never choose the right path. Because sin is blighting the lives of every human being. So in practical reality, the answer is no, there's no other way. And even though God will be fair in a sense, everyone will appear before Him whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, and He will examine their lives on the basis of whether they have done good or bad, the reality is, if the truth is known, and it will be known on that day, 
the bad will not just be a minority, it will far outweigh the good. Because even when ungodly people appear to be doing good things, it is often from impure motives. I'm not saying that people are not capable of doing good things. They are. They are made, after all, in the image of God. And every once in a while, he leaks out. But by and large, our lives are peppered with ungodly behavior from start to finish. And in that final judgment, that will be the deciding factor. I cannot begin to assume whether there will be levels of hell. People want to talk about stuff like that, and I don't know that there's any scripture to to support that, uh, Dante's Inferno notwithstanding. Um, I, I just don't know that we can say those kinds of things. I don't know what the final outcome will be. All I know is that when the judgment of the great white throne is complete, death and Hades and all unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire that burns forever with torment. And there will never be any relief or any potential for escape. That's another thing that many people ask today. If God is a God of love, how could he create hell? How could he send anyone to hell? Well, in the first place, he did not make hell, the lake of fire, for human beings. He made it for the devil and his evil angels. It was designed for them. I've given you some scripture there in your study guide. Uh, How many of you are glad to see a study guide this morning? I think we're back on target, maybe. Um, But you can look those scriptures up. God does not take pleasure in in the uh, death of the wicked or in their punishment. God is not pleased when human beings make a choice that lands them in the lake of fire. He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He is filled with love and compassion, and He gives people every potential opportunity uh, to be saved. But if they persist in going their own way, which is the way of the devil, then they have a destiny with Him in the lake of fire. So the first answer to the question is, God did not design that lake of fire, hell, for human beings. But when sin entered the world and human beings chose to go that path, He made every provision and every opportunity to redeem lost humanity to come and find rescue and redemption in Jesus Christ. He does not desire that people go there. And in answer to the question, why would God send anyone to hell? The answer is He does not send anyone to hell. People choose to go to hell by the, by the virtue of their own uh, sinful choices 
and and the way of life that they have purported to follow. They don't have they have chosen their own destiny. It's not that God has chosen it for them. That is the inevitable outcome of their choices. But people go to hell because they're sinners. And they have no covering for their sin. Which God has graciously provided. If you look at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we all know verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But it goes on to say, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. People do not go to hell because they have not received Jesus Christ. They go to hell because they have chosen that destiny whether consciously or unconsciously, and God has made every opportunity for redemption. And we need to be very clear about that. Because God is not a bigot. Just because you don't like my son, you go to hell. That's bigotry. That is, God is not a bigot. What He says is, you are a sinner, and I have given you the means of grace and redemption. And if you will trust me, I will rescue you from this destiny. I will get you out of it. Because my son has paid the price and met the requirements of the law. And has taken your place. And so if people end up in this lake of fire, it's because of their sin and their self-will. And make no mistake about it, friends, there is no escape, there's no way out, it doesn't get less forever as God banishes the lake of fire to the outermost reaches of the universe, there is never any respite for those who spend eternity there. That should make all of us to be evangelists. Some of you may be called and gifted as evangelists. That may be the office that God has given you in the church. But every one of us are called to be evangelists. And can I digress a moment and say to you that one of the reasons why evangelism is not a spiritual gift. I read today, every time I turn around, they're, they're listing those offices in Ephesians 4 among the spiritual gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, or pastor-teachers. And they call those spiritual gifts. Those are not spiritual gifts. You always have to ask the who, what, when, where, how, why questions of the Bible. And when you ask the question about spiritual gifts, who gives the gifts? The Holy Spirit. 
What are the gifts? Attributes, endowments, empowerment, right? Skills. And to whom does he give them? To each one of us, right? So that we can minister within the family of God, within the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, and when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Who gave the gifts in Ephesians 4? Jesus, right? Jesus. What are the gifts? They're people. They're not things. They're not skills. They're people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And to whom did He give them? The whole church. Not to individuals, but to the body of Christ. Why is this important to see? Why is this significant? Every time you get a smidgen off track with Scripture in understanding the Bible, it leads you on a tangent that takes you away from a true understanding of the plan and purposes and nature of God. And this is huge. How many people I have heard say over the recent decades, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, guess what? Neither do I. In fact, no one has the gift of evangelism. It's not a spiritual gift. It's an office. Christ has called some to be evangelists. But He has made everyone a witness. That is the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon us and endowing us with power. That you will be my witnesses. Every single Christian has the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be a witness. You cannot cop out and say, I don't have the gift of evangelism, because no one has the gift of evangelism. You have the anointing of the Holy Spirit to witness the message of Jesus Christ and what He has done to you, for you. And so we need to make that straight. Because if we really saw hell for what it is, and if we really believed that it is the destiny of unbelievers, our hearts would be transformed with a compassion and a love and a desperation that God Himself experiences when He says, I do not want anyone to be lost. I want everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's my heart's desire. And we need to carry that message. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We must carry that message. Because the only way that they will have a remedy for their sin is to put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. He is the one that can cleanse them. And aren't you glad this morning that at the judgment of the great white throne, you and I will not face our sin? We who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have our names written in the Lamb's book of life, we will never face our sin And we will never fear the lake of fire. We have a guaranteed place and a guaranteed future with our Lord Jesus Christ eternally. Don't you want everyone you know to be there with you? 
on that side. Every family member, every person, there is nothing. When I was growing up, I heard far too often a phrase, you go to hell. No one should go to hell. And there is no one that you can despise deeply enough if you've got a true understanding to want them to be in hell. I'm very careful about how I use that phrase. You'll never hear me say it's hotter than hell today. There's nothing hotter than hell. I don't even want to say something so trite about a place so awful. There, that contemplation of this place, eternal hell, the lake of fire, is awful. Beyond imagination. And I want no one to spend eternity there. Wow, I'm out of time, and I'm only halfway through. Well, there's a lot to talk about, and next week is as good a time as any. New heaven and new earth, a final place of peace and safety, and we might even get to the new Jerusalem, who knows. <laughs> but I'm going to reserve that for next week. You know, if we leave here in the middle, leave on this note. We have the best good news anyone has ever heard. We have within us the hope of life eternal. We have the message of redemption and restoration, and forgiveness, and healing. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have no excuse for not being witnesses. Let us pray for the people that God has placed in our lives. I'm not suggesting you go out today like a bull in a china shop and start hitting everyone over the head with your Bible or the four spiritual laws. My encouragement to you is to pray for those in your life that you know are lost, that the Holy Spirit would prime their heart, till the soil, open the door, give you an opportunity to speak. And when you get that divine nudge, be bold, be bold, and share the truth. Father, may we see this world the way you see it, that we might be faithful as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.